A few years back, Linda Paylette was working and thought to herself, I need to get out of here. Not the I need to get out of here because I'm sick of my boss or I'm sick of my job, but I need to get out of here because I might die. It wasn't a huge fire. It was just, it was enclosed in this attic space and uh, we couldn't find the fire for a long time. And it just banked down really fast and it got really, really hot, like to the point where my feet were burning. And if you feel the heat through your gear gear. and your shoes and your boots, then you know it's hot. I just remember at one point I thought, well, actually I had said to the firefighter next to me, I think we need to get out of here. And I thought, I don't want my mother to see this on the news. And right after I said that and thought that, one of the other guys got on the radio and said, Chief, we need to get out of here. And then we all started going. But And it was a bunch of really experienced guys. It wasn't like a bunch of new people, you know. And everyone pretty much was surprised we got out of there. There were other fires where it was, you know, it it got a little nerve-wracking. But that one, we were like, We thought we were done. Linda doesn't fit the traditional image of a firefighter. Historically, that image has been of a man in firefighting gear. According to the National Fire Protection Association, women make up only 9% of firefighters in the U.S. So when Linda became a fire captain with the New Orleans Fire Department, it was a moment in its 132-year history because she was its first female fire captain. That was back in 2010. Linda's reluctant to talk about that, or herself. She very much considers herself one of the guys. You expressed a a bit of trepidation, maybe a lot of trepidation doing this because you didn't want to talk about yourself. Why is that? Uh, I don't much care to be in the spotlight. When When I got on the job, there had only been five girls on the job, and they were always trying to get us to do interviews, and a couple of us really just don't want to. We kind of want to sink into the woodwork and just be part of the crew and only stand out if we're doing a good job. But even Linda realizes the rarity of women in firefighting. I'm Tan Trung, and this is the Tan Report. As the nation observes Women's History Month, I'm taking a look at a career that got a relatively late start, and one that has taught Linda so much about life, and in some cases, about death. Linda is now in her 20th year as a firefighter. During two decades of service, she has spent 13 years as a fire captain. Linda didn't join the fire department for the pay. For a long time, the pay was low, criminally low, if you ask the men and women who have risked their lives in various fires and emergencies. Linda also didn't join the NOFD because of some childhood dream of being a firefighter. She actually wanted to be a race car or truck driver when she was a kid. It wasn't until an event which forever changed the nation that she decided entering a traditionally low-paying and male-dominated field would be her calling. And I was actually about to start school for something completely different. I was going to go start doing um, marine biology or zoology. Then uh, when 9-11 happened, we were watching the buildings come down at my sister's house. And uh, she said that under my breath, I just said, that's what I'm going to do. I think just watching them run in when it was pretty much certain death, you know, you know, those buildings were going to come down with that kind of heat and damage and they didn't care. They went in anyway. And uh, like I said, just to to honor those guys, I just felt like I had to go. The only way for me personally to do it was to do their job. She was 29 at the time. Up until 9-11, Linda had been working different jobs in the service industry and at gyms. I think two weeks after that, I got the application. I called the department and asked how to apply. 
and they sent me the application. And a year and two weeks after 9-11, I was in the academy. Not long after graduating from the fire training academy, Linda was on her first fire scene. And actually, I had my very first fire um, when I was going to pick up my helmet <laughs> at the uh, supply annex. Because I pulled up after graduation, I went to lunch, and then I went to go get my helmet from the annex, and it was on fire. So um, The annex was on fire? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I, they actually let me play a little bit. I was all excited because I had my gear in the car. And um, they let me do some overhaul, and I helped them hook up to the hydrant. And um, that's out of order. but uh, And I was all giddy because it was my first fire, and I wasn't even supposed to be in the field quite yet. So they were, you know, some of the captains were said, you know, if a chief or the news or anybody shows up, you need to go hide because you're not even officially on the job yet or officially um insured yet so that that was pretty funny and very exciting <laughs> i guess you can you can admit it now all these years later huh? so that that must have been what 2003 then 2002 uh our 302 is our class so 2002 is when i got in the academy september of 02 and then we graduated in 03. within two years hurricane katrina would hit the gulf coast flooding the city of new orleans so you were here for Katrina. I mean, you were firefighting during one of the toughest and arguably the toughest time for a lot of New Orleans sure. here. What was that like for you? It, it was pretty indescribable. Every possible emotion that you could have, we dealt with through that. I mean, some of it was very exciting. Some of it was scary. Some of it was horrible. Some of it was amazing. We saw the very worst of people on some ends. And then we saw just the best of people. Like people came in town to help us from all over the country. Um, of course, some citizens that were still here were helping save lives of other citizens. It was something I would never want to go through again, that's for sure. But it was an unbelievable situation. What stuck out? I mean, when you say the horrible, like, um, what stuck out to you? Obviously, there was a lot of death. The Superdome and the convention center, everything that went on in, in those buildings. It's actually still hard for me to sit in there and not think about what went on. We kind of fell down a hole talking about the storm. It gets like that sometimes for people who worked or went through Katrina in 2005. For me, the, the weird thing was I just remember when everybody, where there were, when there were still people there, and I hate to say this, it, it and maybe we all have different memories of Katrina, whether it's visual or other senses, but it was what it smelled like. It was, it was the scent of like human suffering, and that's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. And it wasn't, I'm not trying to be disgusting. It, it was, was the just, smell of death. Yeah, it was the smell of death and just suffering. And you had people there that were waiting to get help. People had died waiting for help. And all around you, there was just like chaos going on and we just, nobody really had our bearings straight. And that's what I remember most is like going into the dome, the convention center. And then weeks after that, when we had to do all the people coming home and months later, people coming home, 
the, just the flooded homes, just the smell of Katrina is what always lasts for yeah. me. Like I try to purge all of the, the scenes out of my brain, but like there'll be sometimes, especially after certain hurricanes here, when I smell a flooded home and it takes me right, right. back to 05. Right. It's weird, so I, so I get it. We've... Yeah, the smell was significant and, and the giant flies. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> were I like size those. of horses. And uh, I remember, you know, they let us go to Walmart right before everything happened to get some supplies. And while we were in there, it just, you know, people in the neighborhood started to find out there that they could get in there. And um, it got really scary at one point. You know, you just heard stuff breaking everywhere and people were just looting everything. And um, you go back to where the jewelry and the weapons were and all of those things were gone. And they're walking out, you know, with, with televisions. And this this one guy had a whole cart of, like, TVs and VCRs back then. And I'm like, you do realize we have no power, right? And he's like, yeah. I'll use it when it's done. <laughs> okay. Be and, waiting for a long time. Yeah. And um, so that was the part of humanity that, you know, was disappointing. And then, of course, when things got really bad, when the looting got really bad and they were setting fires to everything. And we had a fire at canals canal place we we're there for like eight hours and same thing you could just hear stuff breaking throughout the mall and and that was a bit nerve-wracking because you knew a lot of people had weapons and we were carrying weapons at that point and uh there's a picture of me um in like these big cargo shorts and a t-shirt and i've got a gun on uh my hip and a cigarette in my hand which i didn't really smoke but a lot of us started smoking it through that. I think you'd be forgiven in 05 yeah. if you started smoking. That's all I'm right. going to say. Yeah, a lot of people that didn't smoke for like 20 years started smoking during all that. We were at the Hyatt. And you could just, we were too. Yeah. yeah I, 23rd floor. Right. And uh, well, one, we had to go bring everybody down because people went back up to their rooms and we had to go carry people down from like the 27th floor. And But when we we're up there, you could just see the Superdome peeling off. Do you remember that? Well, that was sure crazy. And then when we had to go up to get people, there was a telephone that had gone, like the um, handset part of it, had gone out the window and then back in the window and then through the... It was just weird stuff like that, you know. And uh, But the military presence was crazy. Once, once we got military in, and like I went to Engine One on Magazine, they had sent me over there. This is probably three weeks post Katrina and the whole apparatus floor is cots and military guys sitting there cleaning their weapons and there's this military walking around everywhere and it was so post-apocalyptic you know and like you're talking about the death like everything was dead not just people but the, the city ground, was dead the plants yes. the grass like... so everything was brown and dead and and that's the kind of stuff that sticks do you remember how dark it was at night? Yeah, like that if, was if you kind of nice because <laughs> it was like you could see stars. And... Sure, I guess if you're looking up, but I wasn't looking up that much. I was like, "Whoa, this is really dark." <laughs> but I, I just remember how dark it was and quiet. Yeah, and it was. It was. Very, it was an eerie, dark quiet in the city, and it's. It just, was. Yeah. Does it seem strange to you? Like we're, you know, in a couple of years, it'll be twenty years. Does it seem like twenty years? It doesn't, but. When we hit, was it the 10 year reunion or anniversary? I actually had to like leave town. It was, there was so much 
about Katrina. It was on the news. It was everywhere. And I was like, I can't listen to it or see it anymore. So I went and visited my friend in Pittsburgh who had left during Katrina. And, uh, yeah, I still have PTSD from a lot of that, you know. Um, I, I haven't been able to watch any of the documentaries or any of that stuff. And um, even, like, when you go to that Starbucks on Harrison and it has the brass line where the water line was, that freaks me out. You know, it's crazy to think that everything was that flooded and sat there for two weeks. What was it like for you because... You know, you were seeing 9-11 happening and that in many ways inspired you to do what you do now. And then Katrina happens and then now you're seeing some of the firefighters who had gone through that experience and knew exactly how tough it was to bounce back and to go through a disaster coming down and helping you all. What was that like for you to process that? I mean, you were still relatively in a young stage of your firefighting career. Yeah, I just had two years on at that point. Um, it was really interesting because we all felt like 9-11 was way more devastating. They lost 343, 343 guys, um, plus all the citizens, plus the police, plus EMS. You know, they had to go to funeral after funeral after funeral. And then the guys that got cancer and the guys that committed suicide. And to us, that was way more horrible than the natural disaster. And they were all like, no, we still had homes to go to. Y'all don't have homes. Well, not y'all. You guys don't have homes to go to. And we're like, but we can rebuild the homes. You know, that's, it it was interesting because we both, we, all had empathy for the other side and each thought their situation was worse. I, I still have friends that some guys that came down from New York that helped us. Uh, one just came to visit for, for Mardi Gras and stayed with me. And, um, you know, I've kept in touch with a few of those guys and it was amazing to have these people come in and just contain everything and put and organize everything. And then later, like, uh, departments from California and wildland firefighters and all came in and like set up a tent city. And, you know, it was, we had our whole little compound over there. So it it was pretty amazing to get the help. And the first year after Katrina, they invited us to their St. Patrick's Day parade. And then we were um, respectfully not welcomed back by the city. (laughs) What did you guys do? What Um, happened? They told us we couldn't drink or pass out flowers or pass out beads and we were like well then what kind of parade is this and of course being new orleanians we continued to do our traditional parade act and uh they they told us we couldn't come back (laughs) i think you need to invite them down for the irish general parade right (laughs) well a lot of the guys have come down okay good but the city that ran the parade was not happy with us so so the the official side of it said no but the the brotherly, right. sisterly, family side. Oh yeah, they were they side. were all yeah, about it. Yeah, we're okay with it. Yeah. Okay. And, Secret's safe with us. Yeah. But uh, but then we we got busted, so we weren't allowed to go join the parade again. Man, you guys aren't very tactful if you're getting busted like that. <laughs> no. Kind of firefighters are you? <laughs> well, our shirts were turning green from the beads too, so <laughs> we're in dress uniform. About five years after the storm, Linda and another firefighter, Kathy Janke earned the title of fire captain, becoming the first women to hold that position since the New Orleans Fire Department was established as a paid fire department in 1891. 
I went through the same process as everybody else. You have had to have six years on the job and a certain amount of core classes that are part of a degree, the fire tech degree. Same thing anyone has to do to get promoted. So I had to finish the core classes, have my time on, and then you take a written test. And if you pass the written test, then you have to take an oral test. And that can either move you up or down or knock you out of the running completely. So it, it actually ended up bumping me up a little bit. And uh, Kathy Janke and I were literally like one or two points apart. I'm like literally a point or two ahead of her, but we were promoted at the same time. So I can't, I'm not like the first cause we got promoted at the same time and we had not much different in scores. Sounds like we're splitting hairs there at that point. So <laughs> I guess, can we say you were both the first captains, the yes, first yes. female captains. And is it weird when, when we make that distinction, when we're like, you're the first female, you two were the first female captains for the New Orleans Fire Department. Does that make you feel strange and why? Um, I'm proud to have been, but it's also, I don't want to just be identified as that. You know, I, uh, I just want to be a firefighter and not necessarily pointed out for my gender, but, um, I mean, I said I am proud to have to have accomplished something that only two of us at that time accomplished. And I think it's hard to avoid sometimes because when we look at the interim superintendent for New Orleans right now for the New Orleans Police Department, it's a black female. And, you know, when she was in that position or she was assigned that position, a lot of the media attention was she's the first black woman to be interim superintendent and if we have a permanent superintendent that is a black woman i think there will be attention paid to that and maybe we're in this different space now in 2023 that you know this wave of inclusion do you think we're going overboard at some point where we're always pointing everything out and everything is sort of deserving of of attention um no because sadly i do feel like women still are kind of at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, and I think you, you don't have to think that. I mean, yeah. you look at the pay, it's, you know, in many, many industries and occupations, they, they are very much still at the bottom. Right. So it is nice when it's acknowledged. I just, I get embarrassed by it. I mean, that's, that's natural. Yeah. Yeah. That's natural. Um, but luckily in my job, um, you have to do the exact same thing as the men. So as far as the training school went, you had to abide by all the same rules and, and qualifications. And um, to get promoted, you have to go by the same qualifications. There was that little bit of time with our past superintendent where things were not as fair. So I'm glad we're back to a fair system and no one can be like, oh, well, you got promoted because of this. Kind of taking me back to Fire Ops 101, I'm a, I'm a dummy when it comes to these ranks. Like, what does it mean to be a captain? Like, what, what's the difference with a captain and what are your responsibilities when you become a captain? We're still a firefighter. We still do all the firefighting duties, but then we have to do the administrative stuff as well. So I'm in charge of or responsible for my crew. You know, there's there's four of us total on my crew, including myself. So I'm responsible for my crew, and then I'm responsible for all of the uh, paperwork. We have to do the the paperwork for the roles, or when we do our inspections, I have to do the paperwork for the inspections, or medicals, or 
smoke detector installs. I just have to do the administrative part now. And then, you know, and then I have to manage people, which I was, it was, that was a weird transition having to manage people. But uh, I have this amazing career right now. So I'm also not really looking forward to moving into a different position because I love my crew and I love my firehouse and I really just want to stay there and, and, and work with them and, uh, continue to fight fire until my body says, don't do this anymore. How about in the field? Like on a fire scene, does the rank of a fire captain change the way that you interact with your crew or other firefighters? Do do they defer to you in the field because you're a captain? Yeah. It's, it's just, like I said, just management. Now, when you have more, uh, experienced firefighters, the less you have to manage. You know, they'll just do their job and there's not a whole lot of managing needed. But for the newer guys, you have to kind of teach them and, and push them along to what the next step has to be at a fire. But it's different every fire though. So there's no like set thing. Okay, when you get to the fire, you do this, this, and this. Cause every fire is a different situation. Every medical is a different situation. Um, but you just have to try and manage them. And I have to try and relinquish the duties because I still like to do the job. And I have to remember that I'm supposed to be a little more hands off and mentor them. (laughs) And I'm not, I'm not great at that. So one of my firefighters and I came up with a code word because if we're in a fire and I have the hose and he wants the hose and I'm supposed to give him the hose, and he'll be like, you know, can I have the line? Can I, do you want me to take the line? Can I have the line? And I don't hear that at all. So I, we came up with it. He has to say, pickle, pickle, pickle. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, here's the hose. And now you can fight the fire. <laughs> it's going to make me look at pickles differently from now on. <laughs> well, I wanted something. We were like, we need something so absurd that makes absolutely no sense in the situation we're in. So I'll hear you. Otherwise, I just like it got tuned out. So uh, pickle, pickle, pickle definitely doesn't make sense when you're in a fire. Here's what may not make sense. Even after Linda made the rank of fire captain, she kept working in the service industry. And then I still bartended for many years after I got on the fire department. But then I had at least a a set career and, you know, the thing that I really loved doing and then the thing that made me money. She had another gig that made her money because a firefighter's pay in New Orleans wasn't enough. That became more evident, to me at least, when the so-called Fight for 15 to raise the minimum wage regained a lot of attention as the pandemic continued into 2021. I remembered watching marches and rallies of workers in fast food, retail, hospitality, etc. It was across the country. They were called frontline workers, or essential workers. But in their view, their hourly pay said they were expendable, easily replaced by someone willing to work at or below a certain wage. The fight for 15 was a push for 15 bucks an hour. When there were demonstrations at New Orleans City Hall, members of the local firefighters union were there to support the cause, because some of them were making less than $15 an hour, even with years of experience on the job. It was odd that some firefighters who have often been called heroes in the community had to ask for a living wage. For firefighters to sit there and say, we're in the fight for 15, seemed like such a low bar that as a city, I just thought that, man, we're really failing. Oh, dude, for us to get up to the lowest pay rate at $15 an hour is huge for us. When I, got, I just couldn't yeah. wrap my head around that. Though. When I got on the job in the academy, I was making like five sixty an hour. So, I mean, up until, up until I got made captain, I was 
making $10 an hour, I think. That was my highest pay as a firefighter, I believe. And um, it might have been a little lower, like $9.80 an hour. I found an old pay stub a few months ago from right after Katrina, and it was $620 for two weeks. It just, it just felt like there's so much risk and so much stress on the job that it, it just deserved more. It, Obviously, that's very naive of me. No, it definitely deserved more, but we're happy to be getting what we're getting. I mean, we've gotten multiple raises in the last few years, and we are extremely thankful. You know, uh, it, it, we've never gotten this many consecutive raises either. And since, I mean, like I said, in 20 years, I've never seen this. So I, mean, I know it's not going to continue, but at least we're getting up to a, a livable wage now. I know you're not the official representative of the union or, you know, the politician you know, interfacing with the administration, but what do you think changed? The administration. Like the I said, I think, I think the union board completely changed over because we voted the old guys out um and the superintendent assistant superintendent i mean all of the administration from um the top down as far as the higher administration and the mayor you know uh i don't always agree with how things are going in the city but she has done wonderful things for us i mean i've always had to like constantly watch my bank account and you know, just in the last couple of years, I'm like, oh, I can breathe. You know, it's, it's nice. Depending on who you talk to in New Orleans lately, saying something positive about Mayor Latoya Cantrell may get different reactions. Linda doesn't like politics, but when you're an employee of the city, it can be hard to avoid it. I had no idea how political this job was until I got into it. And, but I don't want to be one of the political players for sure. You know, it's political enough for me just having to rely on who's in office or who's in our administration to make this department better, um, better for us, better for the city. According to Linda, the politics of the previous administration, the previous fire superintendent, and the previous heads of their firefighter union hurt the department. We were running short every day for years, and uh, that had a lot to do with the previous administration, both the mayor and the superintendent. And um, people were just getting so disgruntled and, and morale had gotten so horribly low that people were leaving left and right. But what was the justification? Because I remember I remember covering a lot of those issues. I mean, why was it to the point that you didn't have enough firefighters? Um, the way we were being treated, people, like I said, the morale just got so low that people started to leave. And we never had an attrition problem with with the fire department before that last administration. And like I said, people used to come on and this would be their career. And uh, guys that I never thought would leave. I mean, like fire department for life, New Orleans fire department for life. And during that administration, they just got so disgruntled they left. And people went to better paying departments or or uh, completely different careers and and we just had attrition like crazy. And then they also put a freeze on hiring. So I think it was a good five years, maybe longer, that we had a hiring freeze. So all these guys are leaving constantly and we're not replacing them. So we got to a point where we had to shut firehouses down. Everybody was running. We're supposed to have three on the truck and four on the pump. And it was three and three. 
it got to a point where they were even with shutting certain firehouses down some days they were running like one of the companies out way out 31 in a Zipanish Niles with two, which is unheard of. So, um, we just did not have enough people. And now with this administration, we've had back to back classes and we're finally starting to get more guys in, but it's also a really young department now. Under Mayor Cantrell, Linda says pay and recruiting for the NOFD has improved. Now that we're, you know, we're really starting to get some decent pay, of course the morale has gone up and people in the firehouses are getting along better. And you know. Isn't it amazing <laughs> yeah. what a little, I, have to, yeah. I hate to say little, but I mean some deserved pay, but it, when people say money doesn't matter, sometimes it does. It's, it's huge, especially when you're in such a high stress job. When I got on the job, the thing was you get, you make your money on the back end with retirement. That was just kind of, that's what the older guys said. It was known that you weren't going to ever make money on this job. You would never be rich from this job, um, but you would have a good retirement. And, uh, and now it's getting where it's balancing out. Linda intends on staying on until she retires. And if she does, she would continue to be a minority in the field of firefighting. Among the current 550 members of the New Orleans Fire Department, only 12 are women. When I came on, we had five, and there were five girls in my class, so we made 10. And then only two of us from my class are left. None of the women that were on when I got on are left. And then women have kind of come and gone. Why do you think that is? I mean, do you think there's an there's a issue or there's just something about firefighting that is predominantly going to always be male? I think it will always predominantly be male, and it's not... It's just because I don't think there's a lot of women that want to do that sort of job, really. I mean, there's plenty of women that can. There's men and women that don't pass the physical to get in and stuff. And there is men and women that come and go. But I think your heart just has to be in it, no matter male or female. And I think it's just a job that, you know, it's a dirty job. It's a, it's a physical job. It's primarily around guys. And it's not something that attracts most women, I wouldn't think. Well, what's kept you in it? Because, I mean, there was a time, as you were saying, it sounded like under the previous administration, it was not a great place to be. No, it wasn't. And so what kept you on the job as the job a firefighter, as a, as a woman? too? Yeah, the job itself kept me there. Um, and I knew that I would be there much longer than the administration would be. I knew I just had to kind of bide my time until they left. And, and then the camaraderie between the guys, you know, it, of course, there has been issues over the years. And of course, there's been times when I wasn't exactly welcome, but you push through that. Can you put a finer point to the level that you're comfortable? I mean, when you said there were times that you didn't feel comfortable or welcomed, I mean, what, what were those moments? I mean, mm, There's a lot. Uh, I'm sure. In 20 years, I'm yeah. sure there's been a lot. <laughs> um, just, you know, there's some guys that, that just don't believe women should be there. And they make it very well known when they feel that way. Um, and you just have to ignore it. You know, I, it used to get to me a lot more. And I've gotten to the point where, like, oh, I, I don't care what you have to say. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. So there's been struggles. And every once in a while you kind of forget. And then you're slapped in the face again. Like, oh, yeah, you're still the woman on the job, you know. But it, it you just have to kind of not let it get to you. And even some of the women, even buttheads, 
you know, so... Um, You're all human. Yeah. Nobody always gets along with everybody. Right. And not giving anybody a pass, but I think that's the challenge of, especially for minorities, whether you consider yourself a minority as a woman, uh, an ethnic minority, whatever it might be, Sometimes you're just in a space where you are the person that's different and right. they don't get you. Right. And I think that's this human nature that there's got to be a process that you have to get acquainted with each other and know each other's personalities. But when you have those kind of barriers up where maybe it is a predominantly male or maybe it's a predominantly black or white group, it's just the nature, that group nature sometimes puts the person that's not in that group out of the loop. Right. You have to kind of find your way in. It's not an easy process. Right. And now what I really did appreciate with the old school guys is, you know, when I got on, they were very blunt about it. And they were like, you know, we don't think women should be on this job. We don't really want you here. But if you do the job and your heart is in it and you prove to us that you want to be here, then, you know, we'll... we'll learn to accept you or, or, you know, you're not any different than like a guy on that level if, if you're doing your job. And the guys that I respected a lot, I did earn respect from and that's what mattered to me. You know, the people that I don't have a whole lot of respect for, if they don't respect me, then it's no real loss. Did you appreciate that bluntness or that honesty from those old, I did. old school guys? Yeah. And... Because he knew where they stood, at least. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm 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 a very blunt person myself, so I much rather know where I stand, even if it's not what I want to hear. Do you find yourself on the job sometimes? I don't know if you're consciously or sometimes it happens unconsciously. Like you have to kind of tamp down a feminine side of you or no. something. <laughs> Um, I have to remember when I'm in public that I am not with firemen. <laughs> it's the other way around. So uh, I always hung out with guys. I was always the, the one girl in the guy group, you know. So, um, and they kind of groomed me for the mentality of firemen. And, uh... <laughs> That's such a stereotype <laughs> you're talking about right now. But you are the firefighter, so I defer to you. Yeah, I mean, they messed with me really bad growing up. And, like, little sister. But, um, so I had a thick skin already when I got on the job because of them, basically. So I'm probably just as bad as all of them as far as the mouth like a sailor. And, you know, I have to really, like I said, when I get around other people, I have to remember that I'm not at work and I'm not around firemen. And I've always just kind of been one of the guys, so it's it wasn't a hard transition on that end at all for me. To, to be around guys all the time, to sleep in the same room with guys, to use the same bathroom as guys, like none of that was ever an issue. I do think some people have a hard time with it on either side of the, the fence. You know, some of the guys are uncomfortable when the girls come in, and some of the girls are not used to being around so many guys, but... I think everybody eventually gets accustomed to it. It just takes some time. Later this year, Linda plans on taking a test to become a fire chief. And if she passes, she may become the first woman in the NOFD to earn that distinction. She's not the type of person who openly calls attention to that kind of thing. Instead, she has a more silent statement she refers to. Linda recently got a tattoo on her arm. It's a quote from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which reads, Though she be but little... She is fierce. 
in New Orleans. I'm Tan Trung for WWL Radio.